Welcome to The Hot Take. Today is Saturday, January 20th. I am your host, Peter Thomas, and today I am joined by A.S., a Hopkinton resident since 2013 and a frequent commenter on Hop News. Hey, welcome to the pod. Hi, it's great to be here. Glad to be able to talk to everybody. On this episode, the town clerk is unhappy that the select board didn't consult his office when putting forth an article for town meeting that affects voting rights. And the real estate market in Hopkinton remains strong in spite of economic pressure. In honor of Martin Luther King, A and I are going to share a story about Frederick Douglass's visit to Hopkinton and how our town participated in the anti-slavery movement. But first, our main story this week is that after seven months of suspension, following a lengthy public hearing, Hopkinton Police Sergeant Tim Brennan received a 30-day reprieve by the Select Board. In a public hearing last night, the Hopkinton Select Board heard testimony from Sergeant Tim Brennan related to his handling of former Deputy Chief Jay Porter's alleged victim. It was perhaps the most chaotic meeting in recent memory, and ultimately the Hopkinton Select Board succumbed to intense public pressure and voted to continue the hearing to a future date. 194 concerned residents packed the Hopkinton Senior Center, and more than 1,600 tuned into HCAM to watch the select board conduct a Loudermill hearing that would decide the suspended sergeant's fate. Many arrived early to claim a seat and socialize with friends and neighbors, but a hush fell over the crowd as Brennan entered the room flanked by his attorneys. Only the select board, Brennan, and the attorneys were allowed to speak, but that didn't stop the public from repeatedly interjecting. Attorney Anastopoulos, the town's labor attorney, made the first presentation, recalling the events of the day he learned of John Porter's indictment. He also mentioned that this is just the second public hearing he's seen in over 20 years of practice. Normally, these things are done in executive session, he said. Through his attorney, Daniel Fogarty delivered a full-throated defense, saying that at least three of the policies the town was citing as violations weren't actually policies at the time of the incident. As I mentioned, the town's notice identified five potential grounds for discipline. Um, In addressing each allegation, I think it makes sense to proceed chronologically. Uh, First, uh, the town alleged that Sergeant Brennan violated department policy when his family hired the survivor to babysit their children while he was assigned by the chief to work as a school resource officer. The chief did not raise this allegation, I think for good cause, because this allegation is wholly without merit. No policy or rule against hiring a high school student as a babysitter existed at the time in question. The policy relied upon by the town was not created until 2017, well after the time in question. The investigation report claims that Sergeant Brennan signed an acknowledgement that he reviewed this policy, and that's true. But he signed an acknowledgement that he reviewed that policy in June of 2017. The town does not offer any other policies related to this issue. It is not shown and it cannot show that Sergeant Brennan was on notice of any rule or requirement that he notify his supervisor or ask for permission before having a local teenager babysit for his children. Now, for one thing, as I said, we think that that allegation is without merit and shouldn't be considered in making your decision. Um, But the unfounded accusation that was made by the investigator that's included in Kroll Investigations reports should give you pause. It should be a red flag when considering the rest of the report. It's indicative of the problems with the town's investigations that contains inaccuracies and unsupported conclusions by the investigator. Select Board Chair Muriel Kramer was forced to call two recesses to calm the crowd down, who at different times shouted at the board. The second recess gave the opportunity for the attorneys to collaborate, and ultimately the motion to terminate Brennan's employment was rescinded, and they instructed the parties to come to an amicable resolution, 
within 30 days. A, wow, what the hell happened last night? I'm not quite sure exactly how to discuss it other than say there was a lot that happened. You had both sides basically present what I found good arguments. You had the town talk about how you need to follow these proper ways of reporting and how things are working. And then you had Tim Brennan state, you know, I am doing this for the survivor. I am doing this in that way. I think the moral versus ethical argument is a important argument to have. I'm not quite sure if this should have come to here versus the resolution we already had, which is where the which is where we have where you have them then negotiating. That to me should have probably happened first before this public hearing, which has brought so much to the front and probably victimized the town and the victim and everybody involved keeping this so high to the surface. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I assume that they did try to negotiate with Brennan before and say, hey, you know, we'll offer you this. And he was like, no, I want this publicly heard. Um, it was his right. I mean, they they said, you know, he had the right. And I think Anastopoulos was so a little flummoxed that he in 20 years of practice had to even do what he's doing because he, he made it clear at the outset. Like, I've never I've done tons of these and I've never seen this except for one other time become a public thing. First, I want to say that I think this is uncharted territory for everybody. So I think that like the nice thing to the kind and respectful thing for me to do would be to give them a break. Like, I don't think they've ever conducted a Loudermill hearing. I, I know that they have never done a select board meeting that had that many people watching. I mean, I, I would be, I, I don't know all of Hopkinton's history, but I mean, that was a lot of eyeballs. All right. So that's a lot of pressure. You know, ultimately it came down to the town presenting these policy violations saying you violated these five policies. Well, now then uh, Fogarty, Brennan's attorney, turns around and says, these three of those weren't even policies and you're citing them. What do you think of that? I think that, yes, everyone is in uncharted territory with this. I think that Tim Brennan had the right to be heard and should be heard. I understand the questions of the exact policies. I am not, I don't 100% agree that purely citing the policies that were in place after the standards and certification happened was the right move by the town. However, I am not certain that the town had other really good options to bring this in the, we need to make a significant change. Well, I mean, look from Brennan's perspective, I mean, he pretty much held the line. Like I was working for the victim the whole time. And you guys want to talk about policies. That's kind of of how that argument boiled down. Uh, Do you think he should have been fired? For me, I am not 100% certain if termination in the firing would have been the best option. I was under the impression through the entire thing that it might have been a better solution to have Tim Brennan either retire or be severed in a non-terminated way so that it wasn't for cause. I'm not 
certain if that would have happened without this sort of public discussion. One thing that did happen right before the hearing, and we haven't even covered this, is the town released a whole bunch of exhibits. All the exhibits they were using in their prosecution of him, they released and made public on the Hopkinson PD website. That included the detailed interview with Brennan. That included information that makes the victim now very easy to identify. I haven't even written a story because I don't want people to even know who this person is. She has a right to privacy. And yet the town not only put the documents out on their website, they did a press release announcing that they had put the documents out on their website, which was then, of course, picked up by Fox 25, Boston Media, who now linked it. And I'm like, I mean, I think that was absolutely tactless. They could have at a minimum redacted things that would have protected the identity of the victim. I did not know that. I agree that that was, might not have been the best move. I also understand under open meeting laws and all of that, why they have to do that. Not entirely certain how I feel that they didn't redact it. I think that they probably could have in some way. I don't know. This makes me feel very weird inside. I mean, again, like you said, they're under obligation and open meeting laws. I mean, if they're going to bring this against him, they've got to make it public. But at the same time, I'm, I'm like, wow. You know, again, this gets into that gray area. Okay. And this really all boils down, I think, to what is the letter of the law or the letter of the procedure versus what is the, in air quotes, the right thing to do for a victim. Okay. And that I think is the emotional argument versus the pragmatic argument? I don't know. How, how would you describe that? I would describe it as the ethics of reporting an officer versus respecting the rights of a victim. If this was anyone else other than Jay Porter or another member of the Hopkinton Police Department, I would have absolutely no problem with what Tim Brennan did. He did absolutely everything right. I feel that the accountability to the town of Hopkinton from Tim Brennan for not reporting an officer when there is significant misconduct happening is unacceptable. So you... You're in, the, you're in the fire him or somehow sever him, not reinstate him camp. That is correct. So let's switch a little bit to the select board and the members of the select board and how they chose to interpret this. I mean, it was obviously emotional for at least two of them. You know, at the conclusion of the meeting, Muriel Kramer burst into tears. Uh, during his final statement, Shahadul Menan cried. He was visibly, he, he, he paused and he was crying through it. So, you know, clearly this has affected at least two of them on a very deep level, but to some extent, I mean, there were others who seemed confused by the whole thing. Like Mary Jo Lafreniere seemed confused about the facts. Do you agree with that? I agree that there were certain members of the select board who did not seem to understand the difficult position everyone is put in. Well, she, I mean, specifically, she, 
asked Brennan, did, rhetorically asked, did anybody notify her parents, her mother and father, that their 14-year-old was in trouble? Which, by the way, just using that word in trouble offends me on some level because it's a very sort of octogenarian approach to, you know, it's like talking about a girl. It's like it's her fault, right? Like if she were pregnant, she was in trouble. It's a euphemism, right, from the old days. But that said, the woman... So as substantiated by all testimony, was 28 years old when she disclosed. Why would anybody call her parents? You'd have to ask her. Right. So, I mean, that that was it almost felt like she couldn't get the timeline together. And I feel like that was actually a miss by Brennan's attorney. If Brennan's attorney had brought in a whiteboard that had a line chart on it that said, you know, this is when he knew something, and this is the age of the alleged victim or survivor, as Muriel asked everybody to call her. This is what he knew and when he knew. And had that on display during the presentation, it would have been kind of clear. They could have just kept pointing to the whiteboard and said, hey, she didn't, she was 28. Why would anybody call her parents? I mean, that's, do you know what I'm saying? I do. I think that was perhaps a misunderstanding by Mary Jo. I don't think the rest of the select board, from the looks on their faces, they were as shocked as most people were that Mary Jo asked that question. Yeah. I mean, it, it just seemed like, and then I guess let's get to Amy Ritterbush for a second, who, who asked no questions when it was her turn to ask. She said, all of my questions have been asked, and I don't know how that's possible because only Muriel and Shahadul had gone. But then when it came time to discuss and deliberate the motion uh, to terminate him, she read from a prepared speech, which absolutely pissed the audience off like crazy, like because they were sitting there thinking, I mean, I, I could hear the murmuring. I was in the room. They were they were thinking she's already made up her mind. What what are we even doing here? Like she heard none of the testimony that. You know what I mean? She heard none of the testimony that any of these people have made tonight, for or against. For me, I didn't have as much of a problem with Amy's response. There didn't seem to be much that was contested as a matter of fact in the hearing. I did not hear any arguments on either side that were not specifically mentioned in certain ways in the evidence. I think Amy did a lot of research on it. It sounded from her statement that there was a lot of research done and that, you know, helps. But but I mean, what's the point of having the hearing then if you've already decided? That's that's the question. I don't think everyone was decided at the moment. I can see Amy having been decided from certain things that she had stated and certain previous actions that she had taken that she seems like someone who does a lot of research on her own and therefore doesn't need the facts reiterated. Let's go, though, into the, the public presence, okay? So now Amy has read her speech. It then turns to Mary Jo, who starts to speak. And then the public is so riled up at this point. The audience is riled up. And they're like, hey, you know, she read a prepared speech. Muriel stands up out of her chair and starts shouting at the public. I'm going to ask everybody to take, seriously, it sounds hokey, but a deep breath. Look, nobody pre-thought anything. We're all struggling. <laughs> wrote. You just liked it better. 
read what I wrote as well. She wrote, she wrote, she wrote, I, I read what I wrote. Everybody. She was reading it. So was I. This is ridiculous. All right. Let's take a five we minute break. We only got we only got the information Friday, like everyone else, and we read it over the weekend. And then we, there was no meeting on Tuesday, and I had a couple more days to continue to read. I didn't read anything tonight. I didn't bring anything with me to read. No, she's talking yeah. about me. We're taking a five minute break. Uh, we're taking a five minute break. Okay. We're in recess again for five minutes. She starts saying, "Hey, I read a speech too. You just happen to like what I said better." Um, and then Mary Jo again was confused and said, oh, we just got the documents this weekend. And Amy turns to her and says, uh, they're talking about me. And she goes, oh, oh OK, like she didn't. I, I think that that interchange was more. Mary Jo had a very brief thing to say, who probably also had something slightly more prepared um, because of the delay and like must have been like a minute or two before the crowd started shouting loud enough for Muriel to you know, stand up and say something. So so it was pretty clear at that point that it was four to one in favor of termination. Muriel was the only one who said, I don't see the policy violation here. If it if there is one, it's minor. Um, I think that we should work toward rehabilitation. Um, that's taking a very victim-centered approach. Muriel makes her living doing that. So that doesn't surprise me that she would do that. And as she said at the outset, She's known the Brennans for 20 years. Also, Irfram and Shahadul both stated that they thought that a, a different resolution other than the permanent termination would have been a good option. Yeah, so tempers are flaring at this point. Muriel is like, okay, we're on a five-minute recess, which that five-minute recess turned into about 20 minutes. Um, and and for those viewers at home who are watching it, HCAM mutes the feed because Muriel asked HCAM to mute the feed in between. And that's typical for select board meetings. Like when they're out of the room or they're on a break, she'll just say mute the feed because of the hot mic issue. Um, as an aside, that's when Irfan said to <laughs> said to Mary Jo, man, I could use a drink right now, <laughs> which I'm pretty, you know, I was thinking, and the guy sitting next to me said, hey, wouldn't this be more interesting if they passed out beer at this event? Uh, because it was, it was already a bit uh, intense. But at, at any rate, people then stepped out. The attorney stepped out. Brennan stepped out. Um, the town manager stepped out. Uh, and people started to sort of mingle and talk amongst themselves. Uh, various members of the public stood up and started making speeches about the whole thing, which is on Hop News. You can watch that video. Uh, but that was a critical moment because it allowed the attorneys to say to themselves privately, like, this is a shit show. All of these people are upset. The select board can't handle this. We need to do something that makes this meeting stop at this point. And so the town manager, and then I saw Muriel leave and she was back there talking to him. It's almost like they worked out a side deal. And it was like, hey, let's just continue this for 30 days. You guys go work it out and then come back to us. We may never, never even have to do another one of these meetings. I think that that was the best solution for that. Um, this is a apparently a common tactic when you are in these sorts of high-intensity negotiation situations. You definitely need that side conversation that is not public. And there is the negotiation tactic of, okay, we need to make sure that everyone knows what the stakes are. Final point on this one. If 
last night it was either terminate or don't, right? That was the motion that was in front of the select board. And, and it looked like he was going to be terminated. Do you think after what they saw last night and after, you know, just the whole, just the whole thing, do you think Brennan now gets a better deal from the select board than he would have? Than he would have in the hearing, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was going to be terminated. It would have been without. It would have been with cause. We would have been talking about this for the next years. Right now, I think it will be a. There will be a termination. We will have a mutually acceptable solution. There won't be the arbitration. There won't be anything going forward. Everyone will go away happy. Or at least both unhappy. But at least we're both unhappy. Exactly. Yes. So. so he will get a better, you, you feel he'll get a better deal from this. I think he'll get the fair deal that he deserves, yes. Our next story, the town clerk and the select board are at odds on permanent resident voting. At the January 9th select board meeting, town clerk Connor Deegan addressed the board during the public forum on the issue of a proposed article for the annual town meeting warrant which is being put forth by the select board and would allow non-U.S. citizens to vote in Hopkinton's elections. This would be voting for permanent residents only, also known as green card holders. Let's listen to a clip. I am here regarding the one proposed draft that's for the town meeting warrant this time. I will say upon reading it, I initially heard about it when it was discussed a few meetings ago. I was disappointed to see that we're talking about a major local election reform without any consultation with the election office here in the town. Uh, there are a lot of challenges to passing this kind of legislation that would dramatically affect how we run elections in Hopkinton. And the fact that we weren't consulted on how this could be implemented, if it's possible, if it's something that we can really do, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. The select board listened to Deegan but they offered no comment, instead choosing to proceed with the agenda. And while they typically don't engage with citizens during the public comment period, this was unusual because the article itself was on the agenda that evening. Hop News caught up with Deegan the next day, and here's how he described the process. Best way I can put it, disrespectful to another duly elected office. A, what do you think? Should permanent residents be able to vote in Hopkinton? I believe that Permanent residents should have a say in local affairs. I am not certain how that would work within the community logistically, especially because of the state election laws and federal election laws. I think that they should, though, have a say in the town meeting and town affairs. But but shouldn't, at a minimum, the select board have gone to the clerk who oversees elections and said, hey... If we were to do something like this, what would it cost and what would the impact be? I mean, that I mean, that sounds like it should happen. Usually that would um, I did a little bit of back of the calculator math, which was which stated that Massachusetts is about four percent permanent residents, um, which if we assume Hopkinton is 20,000 residents, that gives us a little less than 800 potential permanent residents to vote. I'm not certain how much of Hopkinton, the percentage of Hopkinton residents who are registered to vote and 
how that would then impact, but I don't know if adding 800 potential new voters would impact the system that much. Well, you're you're probably right, and I think the the issue is that there is that 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 the green card program is a federally managed program, and that there is no local database that says, "Hey, here are the people that live in your town that have a green card." So. If somebody were to walk up to the window at town hall for the town clerk and say, hey, I'm a, here's my green card and I want to register, Deegan has no way to validate that they, you know, that the green card's valid, you know, that that they live in the town. I mean, there's just, there's no data to support an initiative like this. There's also no data to support really citizens doing it. I mean, it is sort of assumed. And if you incorrectly sign up for the voter registration rolls, there are penalties that can happen, uh, but it is not the town clerk's job to police who is registered to vote. It is more of the town clerk's job to verify the roles if they believe something is incorrect. So that's that we we also then sort of explored the origin of this request because I, I was I couldn't understand I mean I was I was just like there couldn't be that many permanent residents in town that were clamoring for this and and so in my research I found an article that was published in the Hopkinson Independent in November by a Legacy Farms resident who argued that he and several of his neighbors were unrepresented in town because they were in the United States on an H-1B visa, which is essentially a work visa. If you don't have a job, it's sponsored by your employer. And if you don't have a job in the United States, you have to leave and you have to go back to your home country. So, the, But this measure that's being put forth is for people with permanent residency, not temporary visas like an H-1B. So it wouldn't even help him and the vast majority of the people that do live in his neighborhood that are here on H-1B visas. So my question is, who cares about this issue? Like, who is clamoring to solve this problem in Hopkinton? I don't know if anyone is. I can understand uh, the only thing that I could sort of see that is similar to what they have been proposing would be in uh, San Francisco with the school board, where the school board elections allow, as long as you are a resident of San Francisco, you are allowed to vote. That has certain connotations within the social justice world. I don't know if that is what they were expecting, but this is a solution that I think makes the stand that I think the select board would want to make in the view of justice, social justice matters versus a practical solution, if that makes sense. Moving on to real estate, the market remains strong. In what might be surprising to some, 2023 saw more homes sold in Hopkinton than in 2022. This, in spite of rising interest rates and housing costs in Metro West, 265 homes were sold in Hopkinton, 77 more than in 2022, for a total dollar volume of just over $450 million. The top two real estate agents were Kim Fimmel of Fimmel Fine Homes and the Mackey Group, led by longtime Hopkinton resident Trina Mackey. So, A, given the widespread media coverage, of how difficult it is to purchase a home in the Boston area. What does this say about Hopkinton? 
I think that Hopkinton looks like a very wealthy town that may be out of touch with certain places, especially given that the average home, I think, was like two point something million that was sold. That is a lot of money. And I think that working to get more affordability within Hopkinton would go a long way towards keeping Hopkinton the diverse and inclusive location that we are trying to present. To me, it looks like the schools continue to be the big magnet here. People from the Metro West who have a flexible work environment, they say, well, you know, the schools are great. They're the number one in the state. Um, it's, you know, why would I send my kid to private school when they can get just as good of a public school education here? Um, and I think also Hopkinton is statistically very safe. I mean, the crime levels are very low. Uh, you know, I mean, in spite of all of the discussion we've had today about the police, if you read the police reports, there's it's very rarely anything violent. I mean, it's property crime. Uh, you know, it's people speeding or drunk driving and things like that. So, so I think that's all, you know, good stuff. But the question is, you know, if the schools are the magnet and that continues to drive property values up because people keep buying homes and paying more and more for them, that drives the tax base up. So are we risking pushing people out of this town, people who have lived here 20 years, who can't, who can't afford to live here either because of the taxes for the new school or because they look at it and say, gosh, you know, I could sell my house for a huge profit right now. So, I mean, are we pushing people out? Yes. Good schools that, push people out. That's is that Unfortunately, that's, you know, the way that the demographics of this sort of city work is that you do alienate residents who have been here a long time. I don't agree that that should be a thing. I think we need to do more to encourage people to stay in Hopkinton and not just buy for the school and then leave. Not quite sure how we do that in a way that doesn't hurt the town overall, if that makes sense. Like bring the school lower quality so therefore people don't move here. Yeah, it's and, and, that's, and I, I think that's the problem is that everybody who does live here still wants the schools to be good. So I mean, really your only option is to make the schools worst, which nobody wants. And that would be a, I mean, that would be sad. That would be sad. And then, you know, everybody who lives here would be suffering. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I, I, I just feel though that it is a, it's almost like a, a virtuous circle, right? So you, you build a school that's shiny and new and you obviously have great teachers and a quality product that it produces, but then more people move here. And so then you run out of space. So you need to go build another school, right? And it's just every couple of years, the school committee is up in front of um, town meetings saying, hey, I need another $160 million. And, you know, that's real money. There's a lot of folks who can't, you know, they're thinking about how are they going to make that tax bill? Yeah, it's unfortunate that gentrification does this sort of thing. In 10 years, what town in the Metro West does Hopkinton look like? Hopkinton? Well, does it look like... I'm saying it looks like Hopkinton. I think that we're going not to Newton, have... Not Newton, not Wellesley. I think that we have a location that makes us unique. I think we might look closer to something like Newton, but it's not going to be intense of Newton. It will still be Hopkinton, but in a wealthier fashion, I think.
Well, A, as you know, and our listeners know, we always like to finish the pod with a little bit of Hopkinton history. And today, in honor of uh, Martin Luther King Day, which was January uh, 15th, Monday the 15th, uh, we received this great letter, this essay from Anne Matina, who is a vice president at the Hopkinton Historical Society, on the history of the anti-slavery movement in our town, which I had no idea that Hopkinton was so involved in this. Anne pointed to several local families, many uh, whose descendants still live in town, and they were involved in abolition. She pointed out that the Bowkers, the Phipps, the Davenports, that was just a few of them that she named, um, several generations ago, they were the ones uh, meeting and lobbying and raising money for this cause in town. Um, The Hayden Row Hall was a building. It was Hopkinton's first Methodist church. And it stood at 196 Hayden Row, which is almost to Cornell's if you're leaving the high school. It's actually just an empty lot now that sits between two buildings because it, or two houses because it was torn down. But that building hosted many notable speakers, including perhaps the most famous orator of the anti-slavery circuit, the great Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Frederick and his wife had settled in New Bedford, which is a community that they found welcoming. He rose to local providence as a lay preacher while walking on the docks. Frederick Douglass was a remarkable man for several reasons, mostly because of his literary and rhetorical skills. While enslaved, he had been taught the rudiments of reading, and he pursued knowledge with an intensity that would shine through the remainder of his life. He was immediately recognized as a gifted speaker and began traveling Massachusetts as a paid lecturer for the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. He visited nearly 50 towns throughout Massachusetts, including Hopkinton, on April 29, 1842. That's right. So he gave a very stirring speech uh, that was recorded. The the Historical Society has observations and, and diary entries of that speech. Um, And after Douglas left, the people of Hopkinton continued their efforts for the cause for the next several decades. And they held meetings and fundraisers, and they joined in the multitudes of petitions sent to both the state and the federal government. Um, One of those, which circulated throughout the Commonwealth in early 1843, called for prohibiting state officials from aiding slave catchers who came north to reclaim their, quote, property. Nearly 65,000 people from across the state signed the petition, including 322 from our town, and that law ultimately passed. And this just scratches the surface of uh, Hopkins' participation in abolition and other social reform movements like temperance and suffrage. There is a lot to be uncovered, and there's tons and tons of documents and artifacts and just great stuff in the Historical Society's archives. They're all free. They're open to the public. Um, Check their website. Uh, for uh, for hours because they're not open nine to five. It's a volunteer run organization, but it is so cool to go in and just see this stuff. Um, you know, see these things on the wall, or just go through the archives and see these letters. There is a letter from Frederick Douglass in his own handwriting uh, in the in the uh, historical society, and you know, we published a, a screen co- you know a screenshot of that because it's just so cool to see this man's penmanship. It's just amazing. So again. A special thanks to Anne Matina for her great research and for making this story available to our readers. It's just awesome to hear how, uh, you know, interwoven Hopkinton is in the fabric of Massachusetts history. 
A, we're at the end of the pod. I really want to thank you for being here. It was great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. This was really great, and I look forward to continuing to have conversations all over Hopkinton about these sorts of issues. Listeners, thank you so much for listening to The Hop Take. We will see you around town.